the Indigenous Connection Show. Tanse. My name is Randy Lynn and I'm the host for the Indigenous Connections radio show. Join me as we discuss various topics in regards to First Nations culture, arts, ideologies, and spirituality from both a historical and contemporary point of view. Randy Lynn Natsigasin Mustasini Nihia Uchini Alaklo Bishalberta Egwa Ni Wigan. Hello everyone, welcome to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn Nanmu Candeline. I am 33 years old and I'm the eldest of three children. Uh, I originate from the Big Stone Cree Nation in Northern Alberta, Treaty 8 Territory, but I call home, well, hometown, Laklabish, Alberta. Um, I consider myself to be very fortunate in the sense that as a child, I was able to grow up around my culture and its teachings. Uh, having that experience has played a huge role in how I identify and how I perceive the world. It also motivated me to get an education with a cultural background. So I do have a diploma in Aboriginal mental health, as well as a degree in Indigenous social work. I was living out in Saskatoon for the last decade, but I moved back to Laclabish, and I'm very grateful to do this radio show with you guys every week, as I feel it's very important that we have these kind of discussions. So each week we will be discussing very to- various topics in regards to Indigenous First Nations culture, which includes art, history, ideologies, and spirituality, both from a historical and contemporary point of view. I always like to make a point of why I utilize the word contemporary, is because um, there's a stereotype of misunderstanding that as Indigenous people, as First Nations people, uh, we're relics of the past, that we, our way of life is in the past. And as a people, yes, we hold onto the traditions of the past, the teachings of the past. We hold on to those very near and dear to our heart. But we are still here and we are a culture that is still evolving. Uh, we are not relics of the past. Um, and you can see this in our music, in our art. Uh, in our storytelling, we utilize resources that are available to us and we incorporate it into our traditional teachings as well. So I like, I just want to make that point that the things we talk about aren't just about historical. Yes, it plays a big role in it, but we are here and we are a culture that is still evolving. And it's my hopes that by having these conversations and creating dialogue with an explanation that as a community we can start breaking down stereotypes and misunderstandings and building uh, what I like to refer to as a metaphorical bridge between the indigenous and non-indigenous communities and I feel this is a really how we could start moving forward in the spirit of reconciliation Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar with that word reconciliation it just kind of entitles that that a wrongdoing has been done and that both or all parties involved are ready to work together and move forward in the healing process to take responsibility of what has done and hopefully create a better future for tomorrow for the next generation. So today's conversation is a continuation on the series of Okamao Square, which loosely translated into English means boss lady. This will be our third installment of the series, and today we are discussing the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Woman Movement slash Epidemic. The Indigenous Connection Show. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today is a continuation on the Okamawa Squayo series, which translated loosely from English is Boss Lady. Uh, so, in the first episode, we talked about the role Indigenous women played in a matriarch society. Um, as Indigenous people, we have identified from time and millennia as a matriarch society, meaning we hold our women in very high esteem. They were highly respected and thought of as extremely powerful. Um, women were often sought out for final answers when it came to determining uh things that were detrimental to the community and the reality is that we would not exist as a species without our woman, right? As we look to the story of the bison and their ultimate demise of nearing close extinction with the reality of the females being overhunted and not having the ability to repopulate, right? Um, And stories have been shared for millennia of the importance and the sacredness of women by indigenous people. The story of the deer woman, the story of white buffalo calf woman, for example, that we talked about. And how severe punishment could and would follow if women were disrespected in any way. And these teachings were taught and they were firmly held that women are important and should be treated as such. Uh, Unfortunately, this way of life was disrupted by colonization and having Western ideologies being forced on indigenous people. Um, When the newcomers came over, they brought over their matriarchal views, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, and how they operate as a society that men are above women. And we understand historically that these ideologies root right back to the teachings of Adam and Eve, where Eve was the one who was tempted um, by eating the apple and going against what was told told not to do, right? And so we start to see a shift of power where women were held in high esteem to eventually becoming object, objectified and victimized to that's our reality today. And we see indigenous men adopting these behaviors of abusing women through learned behaviors of the residential schools, where unfortunately many, many children were victims of abuse. Um, With no proper intervention, you learn that this is how you get your needs met. If this happens to you as a child, you grow up with the understanding of this is just how things operate, right? So without any proper intervention, anyone to tell them that what happened to you, the abuse you endured as a child, was not right, they grow up believing that this is just how life works. And we see an uprising of lateral violence of crimes of indigenous people pursuing crimes against their own women, their own people. And this, unfortunately, is a learned behavior. So that's kind of a quick review of our last two episodes. And today we are talking about the missing and murdered indigenous woman epidemic. Um, It has become a movement in itself started by grassroots organizations. Um, Before I get more into the description of what this movement is, let's talk about statistics of indigenous people here in Canada. So I did some Googling, checked out uh, the government of Canada statistics and 
it's no secret that for a very, very long time, indigenous people have been highly represented in areas of socio and economic crisis. As a demographic of people, we highly represent the justice system, the health system, uh, the social services system, so many different avenues that affect us negatively. So let's look at some statistics really quick. Uh, indigenous people make up only 4% of the population in Canada, okay? So 4%, so just a little bit of the population. Yet 30% of the people incarcerated in provincial institutes identify as Indigenous. And of federal institutes, 29% of the people in those places are Indigenous. Out of every 10 crimes committed in Canada, Three of those crimes are against Indigenous people. 25% of Indigenous people are one in four Indigenous persons live below the poverty line. Uh, currently over 100 Indigenous communities in Canada, 100, just wrap your head around that, 100 Indigenous communities in Canada don't have access to clean drinking water. These conditions have been an issue for more than a couple decades. This isn't a new issue. This is something many, many people have been struggling with pretty much since the time they were born. Indigenous people make up 7% of the homeless population in the urban areas. And this kind of shook me to my core. A whopping 30.6% of the youth homeless population are Indigenous. Those are our babies on the street, you know? And within a four-year period of between 2015 and 2019, almost 400 cases of Indigenous women and girls have been reported missing, with 167 of them involving homicide. Um, that's really just the number that has been reported. Um, it's believed that those numbers are a much higher because unfortunately, many people excuse their disappearances due to their high-risk lifestyle or, oh, they'll come back. It's not taken as seriously as it should be, so it's often not reported. And statistics, sorry, statistics, there we go. Statistics state that one in four Indigenous women will be victims of violent crime. One in four have or will be. Uh, and you think Canada, we identify as a first world country. We have so many resources. We have so many rights. We have so many freedoms. Um, we enjoy so much more than a lot of countries around the world do. A lot of our brothers and sisters around the world are struggling just to maintain. And yet we have so much available to us yet why are indigenous people living in third world conditions? And I know a lot of it goes back to the reality of the pain and trauma that we have endured since colonization, and especially with the residential school. So all these statistics have been taken from the government of Canada, like I said, and we are represent, overrepresented in so many different sectors of the system. And we see this dripping into racial tensions by society, as society generally has a very low opinion of indigenous people. And I'm not saying everyone has a low opinion, but 
it's very evident that Canada as a majority really don't look too highly on its indigenous population. And to prove my point, go on Facebook and or any article regarding indigenous people, indigenous issues, something happening to indigenous people and read the comments and how racially motivated, how much anger and hate is directed towards our people. And I know a lot of it comes from miseducation um, and stereotypes. And, and as a, just as a person, I can't say it doesn't hurt as much as I try to understand where this person may get this negative idea about indigenous people from. Um, it's very overwhelming. It's very disheartening. And we kind of have a rule of thumb as an indigenous person. Don't read the comments when it comes to articles because you will have your heart broken. But to be proactive in the matter in a very reactive society, I feel that's that right there is a big motivator of why I do the things I do, why I try so hard to share the little bit of knowledge I have about Indigenous people, about our culture, our ideologies, and our history, as well as mental health, and kind of try to paint a bigger picture of why things are the way they are today. So when I take a good look at all these contributing factors and the reality people perceive of Indigenous people really since the time of first contact, unfortunately I'm not surprised at why Indigenous women have become such easy targets to predators and perpetrators of crime. So we will take a quick break and we will talk about the importance of the missing and murdered Indigenous women movement after this. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host Randy Lynn and today's conversation is a continuation on of our Okamawa Squeo series aka Boss Lady, translated into English loosely. Um, to, so we are going on talking about how the dismantling of the matriarch society for indigenous people eventually led us into a state of emergency where our indigenous woman, one in four indigenous woman and girl, is likely to be the victim of a crime at one point of in her life. Um, Many, many, many of our women have disappeared over the years. Um, not many have been, cases have been closed. Um, there are instances of serial killers that have attacked only indigenous women. So there's a lot of, a lot of information when it comes to the missing murdered indigenous women epidemic that is happening right here in Canada. But let's talk about the movement in itself and how it came to be. So with the uprising of many grassroots organizations, thanks to the ease and um, access of social media, this has allowed for many to obtain a platform to voice their concerns where before they didn't have that opportunity. And we see the uprising of people and families and women advocating for our missing and murdered indigenous women, which gave birth essentially to the movement that we know as the MMIW movement. Um, 
So for very long, society has overlooked and downplayed the crimes against indigenous women. And there are many reasons for this, and I'll get into that afterwards. But as indigenous women, we have decided to stand up and say enough. Uh, that we refuse to just become another statistic in society that and to emphasize the reality that our lives matter even if society has looked down on us for a very long time for centuries society has looked down on our indigenous women uh, but that we will continue to give voice to those who have lost theirs and advocate for justice for the ones who have been affected by the loss of their loved one loved ones and we will continue to bring awareness that there is a very seri serious social issue happening in this country. And in a country to be considered very peaceful, loving, and accepting by nature, why is this happening to indigenous women at such a very high and frequent rate? So with a long, long ongoing history of our women being victimized, um, finally, finally in 2017, um, there was a national inquiry that was conducted into the disappearance of indigenous women and girls in this country. Um, their findings came back that what was happening to indigenous women could be labeled as clearly as genocide. And of course there were criticisms following it as it going is it really genocide what does genocide really entail etc etc um i don't really care about the wording for me and my point of view all i know is that something very serious is happening in our country and it, at an epidemic level and we really don't have time to argue about what language we use in regards to it we need to take action and we need to start being better, and we need to start treating each other better, and we need to start viewing each other better. Um, so we are going to talk about the first missing and murdered Indigenous woman. Uh, many of you know the story of Pocahontas, thanks to good old Disney, right? And I'll be the first one to admit, you know, Pocahontas was a, a personal hero of mine as a child growing up, uh, along with Wednesday Adams and her little uprising during her Thanksgiving play on Adams Family Values. Oh, I love that movie. And why this was, was because as a little girl, uh, I didn't have many indigenous people to look up to, especially in mainstream media. So to see these young heroines, female heroines, standing up and sticking up for indigenous people and being represented on an, on such a huge platform it really meant a lot to me and i was it was a very empowering moment watching these two ladies on tv even if it was a cartoon and a made-up show this is where i finally felt represented because growing up i didn't feel like i could relate to many people um before i moved to laclabish i actually lived in a small community called calmar that's south of edmonton kind of south of leduc even a very small ukrainian town um, and the only other indigenous family in that community was my auntie and her son. <laughs> uh, and I was always taught to keep our way of life kind of quiet, hush-hush, 
Don't talk about going to ceremonies. Don't talk about smudging. Don't talk about this. Don't talk about that. Because of, I feel it was a lot of my mom's own experiences of racism of growing up in Edmonton and the misunderstandings and the mislabeling. Um, so I remember going to public school, a small little school, and my mom would smudge me during my lunch break. She would smudge me with sage. And I would go back to school. And the kids, I was only like in grade three, and these kids were accusing me of smoking pot because I came back with that uh, earthy kind of smell on me. And I, w I was so sad because all these kids, my peers, were picking on me saying, oh, Randy does drugs, Randy does drugs, Randy smokes weed. And I'm only a little girl. Like, how do you handle that when you're taught drugs are bad? And I couldn't even stick up for myself because my mom told me, don't talk about these things. They won't understand. So, yeah, when I seen Wednesday Adams and Pocahontas on TV, I was like, wow, I do matter. <laughs> okay, so with that, unfortunately, uh, the story of Pocahontas has been extremely romanticized by Disney. And as I've learned growing up and going to university, I realized that a lot of what I learned about indigenous people, culture, history in public school and grade school was very romanticized, sugar-coated, and half-truths. So I guess that's another reason why I have this show, too, is to kind of dismantle those understandings and start to put some real truth into what exactly happened. And I'm going to pull up an article on Pocahontas where they actually interviewed the oral historians of Pocahontas's people. And fun fact, Pocahontas isn't even her real name. It was a nickname. And that she was only a little girl when John Smith came over on the British boat. She was actually 10 years old when this happened. So for Disney to portray the fact that her and John Smith had a romantic relationship is very disturbing in itself, given the real reality that she was only a little girl. Um, as well as this romanticized version that their love united their two uh, groups of people into coexisting together and supporting one another. Um, it's very romanticized. There's a lot of other points that were left out that got to that point. And the true story of Pocahontas is actually a tragedy. So we're going to take a quick break and I'm going to pull up that article and share it with you. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and we are continuing on with the third part of our installment of the Okamawa Squayo series, aka Boss Lady series. And today we have moved into the missing and murdered indigenous woman epidemic and the movement that has sprung from it. So many people consider Pocahontas, as we commonly know her as, as to be one of the, to be the first missing and murdered indigenous woman to be recorded. So what I wanted to do was share with you an article that I found depicting the true story of Pocahontas and not the romanticized version that Disney tells us. I'm just going to say it now. I apologize for my pronunciation of some of these words as they're very big and I've never heard them before. <laughs> um, 
So here we go with the article. It's called The True Story of Pocahontas as Not Told by Disney. Pocahontas is remembered as the Native American Powhatan princess who saved the life of Englishman John Smith, married John Rolfe, and fostered peace between English settlers and Native Americans. In 1995, Disney released an artistically beautiful animated film showing the supposed events that unfolded between John Smith and Pocahontas. Although Disney is known for creating fictional tales, many people believe that Disney's account of the life of Pocahontas was a true reflection of past events. The love between Pocahontas and John Smith, the bravery Pocahontas showed when saving John Smith's life, and the tragic ending when John Smith returned to England for medical treatment. However, this depiction is a far departure from the actual events that occurred and the real life of Pocahontas. It is believed that Pocahontas was born around 1595 to a Powhatan chief. Her given name at birth was Matoka, although she was sometimes called um, Amonute. Sorry about that. Pocahontas was a derogatory nickname meaning spoiled chaudy, spoiled child or naughty one. Makota's tribe was a part of a group of 30 Algonquin-speaking tribes located in Tidewater, Virginia. During Matoka's childhood, the English had arrived in the New World, and clashes between the colonizers and the Native Americans were commonplace. In 1607, John Smith, an admiral of New England, an English soldier and explorer arrived in Virginia by ship with a group of about a hundred other settlers. One day while exploring the Chickamaunee River, John Smith was captured by one of the Powhatan hunting parties. He was brought to Powhatan's home at Werowakamako. The accounts of what happened next vary from source to source. In John Smith's original writings, he told of having a large feast, after which he sat and spoke with Chief Powhatan. In a letter written to Queen Anne, John Smith told the story of Matoka throwing herself across his body to protect him from execution at the hands of Powhatan. It is believed that John Smith was a pretentious man who told this lie to gain notoriety. In the Disney version, Matoka, Pocahontas, is depicted as a young woman when she saved John Smith, but by his accounts, she was only ten year, she was only a ten-year-old child when these events oc- occurred, and therefore highly unlikely that there was a romance between them. Matoka often visited the settlements at Jamestown to help the settlers during times when food was short, was in short supply. On April 13, 1613, during one of these visits. Samuel Argyll captured Makota who ransomed her for some English prisoners held by her father. She was held hostage at Jamestown for over a year. During her captivity, tobacco planter John Wolfe took a special interest in the attractive young prisoner, and he eventually conditioned her release upon her agreeing to marry him. Matoka was baptized Rebecca, and in 1614, she was married John Rolfe, the first recorded marriage between European and Native American. Two years later, John Rolfe took Matoka to England to use her as a propaganda campaign to support the colony of Virginia, propping her up as a symbol of hope for peace and good relations between English and Native Americans.
Rebecca was seen as an example of a civilized savage. And Rolf was praised for his accomplishments in bringing Christianity to the heathen tribes. While in England, Matoka ran into John Smith. She refused to speak to him, turning her head and fleeing from his presence. A far cry from underlying love between the two as portrayed in the Disney movie. In 1617, the Rolf family boarded a ship to return to Virginia. However, Matoka, or now known as Rebecca, would not complete the journey home. She became gravely ill. Theories range from smallpox pneumonia or tuberculosis to her being poisoned. She And she was taken off the ship at Gravesend, where she died on March 21, 1617. It is believed she was 21 years old when she died. Sadly, there was no fairy tale ending for Matoka. And a little piece of history that article forgot to mention was that Matoka, or Pocahontas, was already married. Uh, she actually was married to Kokomon, and they had a child together. So when she was kidnapped by the English and kept as a prisoner for that year, she was kept away not only from her tribe and her father, but also her husband and her daughter. Um, and this is why we consider Pocahontas, Makota, to be the very first missing and murdered indigenous woman. And this is how far back this legacy goes. Over 400 years that this has been happening to indigenous women. And the scary thing for me is that this is our home. Uh, as indigenous people, as First Nations people, we don't have anywhere else to go back to to feel safe. This is our home. This has been our home for as long as we can recall. And it's a scary reality to not feel safe in your own home because where else do you have to turn? And another reason why I wanted to share that story is because a lot of people call indigenous women Pocahontases or there's Halloween costumes portraying uh, a woman dressed up in buckskin and feathers and paint and they label it sexy Pocahontas. But it's not true. And for some people, that they take that as a derogatory term. Um, we hear excuses such as, oh, I'm honoring indigenous women by referring to them by this name. As Pocahontas is portrayed as this heroine. But for many of us, it's a reminder of the reality that we face as indigenous women in our hometown. Our, sorry, our homeland. And a reality that this has been an ongoing occurrence for over 400 years. So it was really important for me to share that story of Pocahontas with you guys so that you can understand how far back this all goes and how it's not so much honoring us when you refer to us as Pocahontas and how important it is to learn the real history behind these occurrences and the origin of these languages that we use. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll continue on our conversation after this. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and today's conversation is a continuation on of our Okamawa Square series, uh, translated loosely into Boss Lady. Um, and we are talking about the missing and murdered indigenous woman epidemic and the movement that has sprung from that. 
And as I prepared my speaking notes for this week's conversation, um, names upon names upon names kept flooding to my mind. Um, women that I personally know, of women that I'm related to, of women that are relations to my friends, to people that I know, and just of women that I learned their names through uh, media, learned their stories through media, whom are all victims of the missing and murdered indigenous woman epidemic. Just so many names came to mind. And it's really hard not to want to go on for hours and hours and hours profiling all these women that came to my mind as I feel they all deserve that honoring and for their names to be spoken out loud and to know that their stories matter. Um, we've lost so many to the missing murdered indigenous women epidemic and they deserve so much more and so much better than what this life has given them. I even think of the stresses of the missing and murdered Indigenous Inquiry, where the committee traveled to major cities all throughout Canada during 2017 and interviewing families that have been affected by the missing and murdered Indigenous women slash girls epidemic. And they have conducted hundreds of interviews. Yet out of all those interviews, they still had to turn away many families as there just wasn't enough time and enough resources to include everyone. And that's how big this issue is. Um, as this issue has affected so many on a very personal level. And I can't help but emphasize with the families of, you know, for so long being told that your loved one doesn't matter, or that it's not major news, or you, your loved one lived a high-risk lifestyle, so they don't deserve the attention needed to find them. And then finally, finally, after all these years, literally centuries of women going missing, there's an inquiry set out. Finally, a place to share your story and to honor your loved one. And just being turned away because there's just too many people trying to share their stories at once. I can't even begin to emphasize what kind of heartache is associated with that and having to fight and struggle just to keep the memory of your loved one alive because in the grand scheme of things, there's only so many people that care about these kind of issues, unfortunately. But that's why we need to have these conversations and that's why we will continue having these conversations and we won't lose momentum when we talk about missing murdered indigenous women and why this is happening and how we as a nation can do better for future generations for our up-and-coming children our young girls to feel safe and protected in their own homes in their own homeland and there's another story that really haunts me and that's the one of Daylene Muskego Bossi, who went missing from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan on May 18, 2004. I personally didn't know Daylene, but her story kind of stuck out to me ever since I was young. Uh, I was about 16, going on 17 years old when Daylene went missing. And at this time in my life, I was still living with my parents. And I often traveled to Saskatchewan and all over Alberta with my mom to go to different round dances. And I would see missing posters posted all over Edmonton, all over all these communities that I go to of Daylene. 
And the reason why she her, she stuck out to me is because of her last name. I actually had a really good friend growing up with the same last name as Gago. And the, so I kind of always seen her posters as I recognized the name right away. And I remember turning on the news and seeing stories of her husband and her family crying for her to come home, begging and pleading for her to come home, and begging and pleading with uh, the community, if anyone knows any information, please come forward, as they just missed her so much. And before I go on with what happened to Daylene, I want to talk about who she was as a person, because that is just as important. Um, so Daylene was from the Onion Lake Cree Nation, which is located on the border of Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, just north of Lloydminster, actually. And she was married to Jeremiah Bossy, whom she had a daughter with by the name of Faith. Daylene was a daughter to a very loving family. Uh, her parents loved her, and she was also an older sister. Uh, Daylene resided in Saskatoon with her husband when she went missing as she was attending the University of Saskatchewan, as she had dreams and goals of becoming a teacher. So she was going to school to obtain her educational degree. Um, Daylene was a loved and adored by many. She was a woman with goals and plans for her future. She came from a loving home and didn't fall under the stereotypes many people used to excuse the disappearance of missing murdered indigenous women. So the night of her disappearance, uh, Daylene was only 25 years old, only 25 years old, and her daughter Faith was only three years old at the time. Um, she had plans to go out with her friends that night, have a girls' night out, um, something so many of us do nonchalantly, right? We often take this as for granted, it's just something we do. Um, and following this night that Daylene went out, it wouldn't be four years the family would have to wait four years before they got any answers of where Daylene ended up and what happened to her and during these four years Daylene's family worked extremely extremely hard to make um, Daylene's story known they hosted many uh, events they organized many many events uh, hoping to engage the community as well as police authorities on the ongoing investigation of her disappearance. Um, her family made many public appearances pleading for any information on their daughter and they even traveled all over Canada including BC following up tips of where their daughter may have ended up, where their sister may have ended up, where their mother, their loved one may have ended up. Um, always kind of turning up cold. And there was actually a documentary made of Daylene's family, and I watched it in school when I was studying for my uh, social work degree. Um, and it, it, it's kind of a difficult story to watch, but again, it's so important to understand how these issues affect real people and affect real families and the ongoing journey of trying to maintain hope that they will one day find out where their loved one is. And there was moments in the story where her brother even talks about how he ended up falling victim to uh, utilizing substances as a way of coping with this extreme loss he 
of grief that not knowing where his sister was and all of those crazy feelings associated with it and finding no escape beyond utilizing substances and that's a path many of us take during our times of grief and loss and it's not because we are weak people it's just it's so overwhelming we really don't know what else to do with ourselves right and i remember one of the teachings i received in university that when people turn to substances and addictions it's not because they want to use it's because they're leaving something even harder behind and for them in that moment during that day it's the substance that they're utilizing that is actually keeping them alive. And that's a crazy reality when you think about it. And we always say addictions are rooted in trauma, undealt with trauma, right? Uh, we're gonna take a quick break before we finish on with the rest of the Daylene story. So stay tuned for that. Welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. Today's conversation is a continuation on of our Okamawa Square series, uh, Boss Lady translated loosely into English. Um, and we are talking about the missing and murdered Indigenous woman epidemic. So we've discussed the story of the first Indigenous uh, woman that went missing, Pocahontas, as people commonly know her as. And we kind of fast forward to 2004, with the missing, um, the story of Daleen Muskego-Bossi, who went missing in 2004. And now we're fast forwarding to 2008. Um, during those four years, her family traveled all over Canada, held many events, made many public appearances in hopes to find any type of answers for their missing daughter, their, her, their missing sister, their missing wife, their missing mother. So in 2008, and under the undercover detective wearing a recording device was able to get a confession 
out of a person of interest, uh, Douglas Hales. So the story goes that Hales was working as a bouncer at a popular nightclub in Saskatoon. Um, the same club Daylene and her friends went out to that night that she was having her girls' night. And the story goes that Daylene was under the influence and she dropped her purse, which her car keys fell out of. And I want to just stop right there and make a point that uh, we are not about victim shaming. Daylene is not at fault for having a night out with her friends for the events that happened afterwards. And we aren't allowed to judge her for it. Yes, she may have been intoxicated, but that is not an excuse for anyone to do what they had done to her. And the reality is so many of us have done this exact same thing, right? Um, we've had a night out with our friends. We may have had a few more drinks than expected. That does not excuse any crimes happening towards us, right? Okay, back to the story. And as I go further on with this, these next few sentences are going to be very triggering for some. They're very hard to wrap our heads around, but this is the reality. Um, so... I apologize for any triggers that this may bring up, and if you need to take time for yourself after hearing what happened to Daylene, please do. Please practice self-care. Um, me, personally, knowing, I already know what happened to her, but even saying it out loud is very hard on my heart. So if you react anyway to what I have to share after this, just know it's okay to grieve, it's okay to react, it's okay to have feelings of frustration and anger. So, the story goes that Daylene was under the influence as she dropped her purse and her car keys fell out. And then the person of interest, Mr. Douglas Hales, was working at the, as a bouncer at the same club that she had the night out with her friends at. And he actually picked up her car keys as he saw her drop them. And then he continued to escort an intoxicated Daylene to her car. He then drove Daylene outside of the city where he sexually assaulted her and eventually murdered her. With her body, he decided to discard it through fire. He set her body on fire um, to eliminate her remains and the evidence. So four years after that, when being interviewed by the undercover detective, Hales admitted the reason he targeted Daylene that night was because she was Aboriginal and crimes against Indigenous people aren't taken as seriously as crimes against non-Indigenous people in this country. And I want to take a moment and share with you an article that was shared by the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, the major newspaper out there, that quotes Daylene's family. Um, and their personal story of their loss with Daylene. So this article is named, My Daughter Wasn't Just a Number or a Statistic. Daylene Bossy's family to travel to Saskatoon for a missing murdered Indigenous woman girls hearing. So this was in 2017 when they were coming through Saskatoon. It's been more than 13 years since Daylene Bossy left home one night never to return. But her family has never forgotten the bright young woman who wanted <clears throat> to be a teacher are the years long after years long search for the that ended tragically in 2008 
A day doesn't go by when we don't think of her and think of her memory. The good memories that she left of us, said Pauline Muskego, Bossy's mother. I'll never ever forget. Muskego, who is from Onion Lake First Nations, is one of dozens of people expected to travel to Saskatoon this fall to share their stories with the National Enquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. The inquiry, which was launched last year, is holding public hearings across the country in an effort to understand why Indigenous women are more likely than others in this country to fall victim to violence. Once they hear my story of my late daughter, I'm hoping they can understand what we have been through, what we've had to endure all those years she was missing, and the hardship that was involved, and hopefully the number of missing and murdered women will stop, Muskego said. My daughter just wasn't just a number or statistic. She was an actual person who, was, who we loved and who we missed and who we wanted to find. And I know the elder families must be going through the same things that we went through. Masi was 25 years old on May 18, 2004, when she bade farewell to her husband and three-year-old daughter and went to meet friends for dinner. When she didn't return home, the family contacted police. For years, Bossy's family put up posters with Bossy's pictures and held annual walks from Onion Lake First Nations to Saskatoon to remind people that she was still missing. They hired a private investigator and personally followed up on tips that could have happened to Bossy. In 2008, RCMP launched a Mr. Big Sting against Douglas Hales, a person of interest who had been seen with Bossy the night she disappeared. Officers posed as a low-level criminal, criminals and recruited Hales to assist with what he thought were crimes. Eventually, Hales confessed to killing Bossy and led undercover officer to her remains outside the city of Saskatoon. He was convicted of second-degree murder in December 24, 2014 and sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for f 15 years. During the trial, tape of Hale's conversation with undercover officers were played in court. Hales told them he knew he could get away with the crime because Bossy was Aboriginal. Just put her in a lineup with 10 Indians. They all look the same, he said. Muskego said she was always concerned about people like Hales, who will target her or her granddaughter simply because they are Aboriginal, but try not to live in fear. Her grandfather, her sorry, her granddaughter, Bossy's daughter is now 16 years old and also plans to speak at the public hearing in Saskatoon this fall. She's going to be writing up her statement or her story of what she's been through these past 13 years. So we need to really show support for her because it's a very traumatic time for her, Muskego said. We tell her things like, your mom was very smart, your mom was in university, your mom was working towards becoming a teacher, and she was on a good path in life. We hope that you're following one as well to do the best you can in life. Through the National Inquiry for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls has been criticized for its slow progress. It's held only one public hearing since it began. Muskego said she is simply happy the work is being done. The thing that they're doing, the National Inquiry, isn't a small matter, she said. And when you're dealing with something that big, you can't expect it to be done in a quickly done quickly in a matter of weeks or months. It could take years or go 
take years to go through this. I'm so, so impatient. It took this long to have an inquiry, so I don't want to rush into it. It needs to be done properly and thoroughly. According to 2015 report by the RCMP, more than 175 Indigenous women and girls in Canada were missing and another 1,049 had been murdered at the time. Those Indigenous women accounted Though Indigenous women accounted for 4% of Canada's female population, they made up 16% of all women murdered in Canada between 1980 and 2012. The National Inquiry into Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls will hold public hearings in Saskatoon the week of October 23, 2017. Oh man, these are hard stories to tell. Even though these are things I've known my whole life, these are still really hard stories to tell. And what really stuck out for Daylene's story for me was that when I moved to Saskatoon, I actually went to the same nightclub that Daylene went missing from. And I was about the same age that she went missing at the time I was going there. And this was a time when I was still engaging in that party life. I've actually been sober over 11 years now. But there was a time in my life where that was what I did. I went out and I partied just like a lot of young people do. And being in Saskatoon and being in the exact same place Daylene went missing and just realizing how easily this could happen to anyone and everyone really shook me to my core. And how fortunate I was to not be a victim as many of our women have in that sense. And I think things really were put into perspective for me as these women were disappearing from the exact same places that I went to uh, at the same age that even though we came from, and even though you can come from good family, you can be working towards an education, you can be doing the best you can, you can have a you know, children, but none of this matters. We're still taken from this. I guess the biggest question, frustration, is the reality that the reoccurring theme in many missing and murdered Indigenous women's stories is that predators feel they are less likely to be caught if they target Indigenous women. And we need to ask, sit down and really ask ourselves as a society, is, why? Why do they feel comfortable targeting our women? And that question in itself is a whole other conversation and requires us to dig really deep into our society, our values, and our the way we perceive things, right? So I feel like we should kind of start to wrap things up. So we'll take a quick break. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for yet another episode of the Indigenous Connections radio show. We will continue on with our conversation uh, uh, in the series of Okamawa Square Boss Lady and go more into depth of uh, more stories of our missing and murdered Indigenous women. I know this is very hard on the heart, but pretending like it didn't happen or isn't happening isn't doing us any good. It's not doing anyone any justice. And in order to solve a problem, we have to first admit there is an issue to be solved, right? 
Uh, I felt this topic about missing murdered indigenous women would probably stretch out over a couple episodes at least as um, to truly do justice for this topic, uh, we need to give it a bit more time, just like Daylene's mom said in the article I read. And that's okay. This is a very big issue and needs to be honored properly. So we'll take out much time we need to, right? Um, we have all year to talk about these things. So I just want to say thank you for joining me again. And I um, apologize in advance or anything ha may have triggered you. Please remember to take care of yourself in those times that you do feel triggered. And just know it's okay to feel this way. You're not strange or weird for feeling empathy towards a family towards this issue and it's important that we start to understand why these things are happening and how real these things are and how much they affect real people such as yourselves and that's how we begin to build relationships and become allies for one another right all right so we will continue on this conversation next week uh, take care of yourself, be kind to yourself, and I hope you have a great week. And that's the Indigenous Connection Show with Randy Lynn. I like to give credit to A Tribe Called Red for their track sisters that we used in our intro.